Hi, Scott here. Just a quick thing before we roll into the episode. Just recently, I've put together this little uh, free guide for DIY indie labels that basically takes a lot of the knowledge and wisdom that I've heard from these label owners and managers that I've interviewed through these episodes, I distill some of that information and I put it into this little PDF that you can get by going to otherrecordlabels.com. I think you'll find it really helpful. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. It's a free guide. So make sure you go to otherrecordlabels.com to check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr. Thanks so much for listening. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you go back and check out other episodes. Lots of great stuff in there, much like today. We interview the founder of 12K Records, Taylor Dupree. Taylor is, a lot of you might know him, he's a a really well-known, world-renowned electronic musician and ambient uh, music producer who's run this label for quite some time. And while I'm talking, you can check them out at 12k.com. That's 12k.com. You can check out their roster and some of their releases, a little bit about the label, as well as Taylor's mastering suite. He's a mastering engineer, and we talk a lot about that as well, why that's important for DIY musicians to consider mastering. And he has a beautiful mastering suite with some incredible gear. So if you're a gear nerd, we're going to be touching on that a little bit as well. Um, We also share an, uh, an artist, and that's a really cool part of the story, is there's a Um, ambient uh, pedal steel player by the name of M. Grigg who started at our label Other Songs with three EPs and just recently has signed to Taylor's label 12K Records for a full length which is coming out in a couple weeks and so that's a really cool connection and we go into that a little bit as well Um, so make sure you check it out one thing to note before you guys send me any letters here um, the irony with Taylor being such an audiophile and some of his fans, um, we had some technical difficulties on this episode, so please forgive me. I think Taylor was using a um, USB mic, and there might have been some sort of uh, um, cell phone interference or a loose cable, but the USB mic cuts out every um, maybe about four or five times in this episode for just a few seconds. Um, and then I, at that, at that point, I hop over to the Skype audio. And so you'll notice that a little bit and, and hopefully I've tried to crossfade it nicely. So it's not too obvious, but forgive me for that. Otherwise, this was a ton of fun for me to talk with Taylor and I think you're really going to enjoy it. But Hey, it's first of all, it's nice to meet you. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. It's great. I've, oh man, I'm, I'm just so stoked to be talking to you and, um, I really appreciate you doing this. Very honored. Yeah, thanks for thinking of me. I'm equally honored. As soon as um, uh, M. Greg, who is our our um, uh, uh, our connection, so to speak, um, he he mentioned you a, a probably about a year ago now, and and the first thing, and so when I was like kind of diving into your catalog, I was like, oh man, I want to interview this guy because the podcast was just launching a year ago, and I was like, well, I I don't want to. I don't want to step on Mike's toes, so <laughs> I waited a little while to contact you. Oh no, yeah, no, that's cool, no problem. Um, and uh, I mean, M. Greg is so great, and I don't know, you know, this episode will probably come out sometime early 2019. Um, but I know you guys are are working on a project together, and that's that's super exciting. Yeah his his release is done; it's been mastered. Um, and his wife is doing the cover art right i saw that that's and awesome and 
but I've got a couple other things coming out like January, February. So I think we're going to do his in March. Okay, cool. That's cool. He's such a talented artist. Yeah, I love it. I love slide, like lap steel slide guitar. And yeah, it really can. And I love when when we first did something together back on Field Notes, um, I was kind of thinking things would be like very Bill Frizzle and kind of this like, uh, and it is, and, and his late and the thing we did with him with Mill Pond is kind of that way too. But um, he he gets some really unique ambient sounds that you would just never have thought, you know, with looping and with different effects and stuff that you would have never thought would could come from a Dobro or a Steel. Yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a big Daniel Lanois fan. Totally. And but Lanois, as much of a master as he is, his like solo steel stuff is never quite ambient enough for me. Like mm. I always wish it was just like a little spacier, a little right. You know, and Mike's stuff like hits that. Yeah. And I've yeah. always I've wanted to work with a you know lap steel player or release something or something so this has been like great for me to find his music well and i mean the daniel and was pretty unique in the sense that um for most lap steel players and there actually are some younger guys coming up playing lap steel now but a lot of them are are kind of uh, hanging out in that alt country genre so very few are are plugging into pedals uh or spacey pedals and and experimenting yeah yeah yeah, it's really, I, it's great. I love. Um, let's let's dive into this. Um, um, I, I I have so many questions here, and I, I don't want to take too much of your time. But at the same time, I really do. I love what your labels bio says about fusing the the technological with the organic. Um, in respect to your label sound and the aesthetic, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely a something that evolved over many years. I mean, when I started the label, I I I was sort of transitioning out of my own uh, work as a doing techno mostly. Okay. And that coming from industrial and just super electronic, you know, I was just so into the the hyper synthetic, you know, just electronic sounds. Yeah. And you know, it was all futuristic and cyberpunk and you know, nothing at all, you know, natural or anything. I just wanted to <laughs> be completely synthetic. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think after a big thing was moving out of Brooklyn to where we live now, which is very rural. Okay. And I, I've always liked the outdoors. You know, I've always been like a kind of a nature lover, but it was never really in my art. Um. And I think moving moving out here and living in it and just getting older and, I don't know, trying to find my own voice or something, it all just slowly kind of crept in. And, you know, all of a sudden I found myself releasing stuff with guitars in it, you know, that if I had, mm -hmm. if the 20-year-old me had told the 35-year-old me that I'd be doing that, you know, I would have never believed him or the other way around, whatever. But, you know, right. it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then I just, I don't know, I just, you know, you, as an artist or a creator, you, you just kind of evolve and you find things that 
tangents that you go off on for years, you know? And for me, it was really this idea of... Of the the unpredictability of nature and the decay of mm. nature and the Im- imperfectness of nature. Totally. You know, and then trying to, you know, I think maybe a, definitely a backlash against the hypersynthetic stuff I had been doing. Right. You know, and it may, maybe a little bit initiated by sort of the glitch movement of the early 2000s. Okay. Where you're trying to find, you know, artists are trying to find, trying to break the digital, you know? Right. Trying to find how to, how to break digital, how to make it sound like a mistake. You know, it was still super electronic sounding, but you're, you know, trying to take the digitalness and make it imperfect somehow. Right. I think that's so important because when it's 100% digital, then somebody else can replicate what you've done using the same tools but when you and they can't replicate the sound of nature outside of your studio or you know yeah sure some sort of yeah yeah i mean in in a you know i have nothing against the artists who are doing stuff you know that sound completely digital or i listen to a lot of that stuff but i guess you know we're always yeah i don't know i mean always (laughs) and the uh, are there similarities? Are there parallels between um, digital and and uh, organic? Do they mimic each other in any way? No, I don't know. I think people are certainly trying to. I mean, from a just on the surface, you've got from a technical point of view, you've got synths and sample libraries trying to sound right. as real as possible, and you know. Uh, technology constantly trying to improve and replicate and mimic real life. But I mean, I don't know from a, you know, purely artistic point of view, I'm not sure if I see, I sort of see them as opposite ends of a spectrum. Okay. You know? Yeah. I mean, just off the head, I'm sure there are parallels, but. (laughs) You, you've, you've kind of become, you know, you've been doing this for a long time, over 20 years. Um, with the label, uh, you've become this respected curator in this genre. What what do you find so compelling about ambient music and and minimalism in, in sound design? Well, I mean, ambient music is, for lack of a better term, I'm not terribly fond of the name. Okay, uh, as a genre name, I think I think a, a lot of people outside the music world might mistake that for new age right no that's um, fair yeah it's hard to find you know the term unlike techno which is you know there's 5,000 subgenres of techno mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. there is no subgenres of ambient music right you know maybe the word drone maybe drone is a is a subgenre but I don't even mm-hmm. know what that means so you say ambient and it just covers so much <laughs> you know, so many yeah, different right. sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of what draws me to it, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's just, it's what I, it's what I do. It's what, it, it's who I am. You know, it, it started in the mid eighties when I 
a friend of mine played me um, Eno's Thursday Afternoon. Right. Which to this day is my favorite recording of all time. And I think, um, I mean, when I heard that for the first time, I had heard nothing like it before. I mean, that's a later piece of his in terms of okay. his ambient work, but I, that's the first ambient music I'd ever heard. Um, and you, what kind of music were you doing at that time before you had heard that? Um, that was, you know, 85, 86. It was um, New Order and, and you know, New Wave and early industrial of the time. Right. Um, a lot of early OMD and, um, yeah, New Order, Cocktail Twins, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, so I always, I don't know, I mean, that hearing Thursday afternoon just, little did I know it at the time, completely changed my life. And as I grew up writing, you know, this kind of mid, late 80s kind of music and industrial and then techno, um, I guess at some point that ambient bug was always inside me and just mm. started bubbling up as I got, you know, realized I was had no interest in being a DJ or playing at clubs or playing to eat out teenagers or, yeah, you know, and trying to find my own voice. And I guess something more ambient was it. But as you said earlier, or as you asked earlier about minimalism, I think the two kind of came up at the same time because as I was sort of struggling to find out who I was musically, um, I was sort of living in New York City at the time. I was sort of introduced to a lot of minimalist artists and architecture. Okay. And just really blown away by that in the same way that I was by Eno's music. I just never seen or experienced art like that. It just had, right. for whatever, you know, for whatever reason these things do to someone, it just had a big impact on me. And, you know, whether consciously or not, you know, I, I guess I decided to kind of blend all that together and see where it took me, you know. I've, I find minimalism is so interesting in electronic music or ambient music or, or whatever term we, we're going to have to settle on today. But I... I find it interesting because, and, and I want to ask you what it means to you in this genre, because to me, it, 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 ha it refers to some sort of restraint because you have so many different options and so many different tools um, to shape a sound, um, but you have, to, you have to hold back. It's like you know picking one delicious thing at a buffet and, and ignoring everything else. Um, you know, we don't say that Bruce Springsteen on on Broadway is minimal. We you don't usually use the term minimal to describe a, uh, just a, a solo uh, violinist or a, a guitar player. But what does minimalism mean to you in in electronic music or in ambient music? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it, it I think it touches on a lot of different you know different parts of the process to me. Um, I didn't come to minimalist music through the traditional minimalists. 
you know, like Steve Reich or I, I heard those guys uh, much later. Um, so I kind of, when I was trying to get, you know, create music that was influenced by minimalism, the minimalism I was being influenced by was visual art. Oh, okay. So it was, um, it was sort of, I mean, exactly as you said, it was a restraint, you know, it was mm. kind of a, a restraint of materials and trying and repetition. I mean, you know, the, the minimalist composers use this stuff too, but, you know, I hadn't heard them yet. So right. it was sort of, a lot of it was repetition. It was sort of pureness of form. Um, so when you take that into music, like you said, it, it's a more restricted palette. It's a, with, with all the, you know, endless options that we have in the studio, it's a way yeah. to force yourself to be um, a little more focused. But in the end, I mean, I'm also not interested in any part of my life in any sort of extraneous decoration or, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, if you come to my house, it's, you know, it's sort of as minimal, you know, minimalism and modern as you can get mm -hmm. when you have two young boys running around, but, you know, but it's, you know, I'm not. Sure. Yeah. That's I mean, a good point. A lot of things, you know, I'm not into decoration for decoration's sake, you know, it's, it's, um, I want things to be functional and beautiful mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and I, I think the music is that way too. And the, when you have music that isn't, you know, loaded with flourishes, you know, that are only there for flourish sake, um, it leaves it a lot more open, uh, to pay attention to or to listen to or for people to, you know, get lost in. If you, if you give someone all the answers, it doesn't leave much up to the imagination. Yeah. You know, right. Tell no, that's true. Everything that they're supposed to know, then, you know, where's the mystery in that? Or where's the, um, you know, where's the thing that allows a listener to get, their own thing out of it. This is, you're touching on something here about, um, that, that I want to dive into a little later with respect to your principles on your website for the label. Um, because, um, there's some really great things there and I want to ask you about them, but, but first I want to ask you about the label. Um, I read somewhere that the label formed out of a bad deal you had personally with another record label. And you can tell me about that if you want. I don't really care, but what, what, what kind of things did you learn from that bad experience that has helped you in dealing with your own artists? Yeah, at the time I was working at a label in New York City um, called Instinct Records. Okay. They were they were the label that launched Moby. Oh, okay. Just doing a lot of wow. techno and they were a yeah. um, you know, semi big American indie electronic label. And I was their art director out of college. Wow. Um, and also uh, 
recording for them. Sort of at the same time, they hired me as the art director and um, decided to sign a couple projects of mine. Oh, wow. That's um, nice. So they were my life for a few years, you know, yeah. <laughs> nine to five and creatively. And they <laughs> they owned me, you know, pretty much. Um, and there was a lot of great stuff that came out of that. I still talk to one of my old bosses, you know, still keep in touch to this day. Um, but I learned a lot of, you know, I learned a lot of things about how I wouldn't run a label, you know, seeing how mm. they ran the label. Right. And, you know, while they were doing a lot of great things and letting us have really total freedom to do what we wanted, um, they were doing a lot of stuff that was, you know, trying to be really commercial and, and, uh, sure. You know, just things as a young, you know, wannabe rebellious 20 year old, you know, that you don't want to, you know, be commercial and right. don't want to fall into these kind of traps. So, I mean, I mean, I, I was there every day and I did enough stuff with them that I learned, first of all, I learned how to run a label. Yeah. And then I learned the parts about it that I liked and the parts about it I didn't like. Um, and then at some point I had an album of mine that for some reason wasn't going to them. Maybe I was already out of, yeah, at that point I was already out of my contracts with them. Okay. And had it all set with this label in California and for some reason or another it fell through and they didn't, despite us having a contract, they didn't put it out. Okay. And I wanted it out. So I said, well, what the hell, I'll start my own label. And, you know, basically using the knowledge I had from working at Instinct and the contacts I had in the, you know, small fan base from my previous releases, I decided to just kind of start a little label for me and my friends and, you know, really make it... At the time, there was not that I knew of, there wasn't any labels in America that were really the way I wanted them to be, hmm. you know, really kind of artistic driven and small and super and this experimental. Is 1997, sorry. Yeah. 97 is when I started the label. Yep. What, where did you come up with the name 12 K? I mean, talk about a minimal, uh, minimal name 12 K.com. That's such a great, you don't know have. how many emails I get like every month of people wanting to buy that domain. Oh, really? And I think well, because well, I, because it's so I, short, you know. Yeah, no, no kidding. Um, I, I, I want to ask you what it means. I have a guess, but I'm not sure. What does it mean? Well, in '95 or '6, I forgot the exact release date. Um, a friend of mine named Savas, who I've done a lot of collaborations with we released an album under a project name called Arc, and the album name was 12K. Okay. And we got that name as we were sitting there staring at the finished album, wondering what to call it. And this is <laughs> really not very romantic at all. That's okay. <laughs> um, but the, 
back in the in the day it was all MIDI files, so it was like sort of pre digital audio for us. Okay. But all the file sizes of the MIDI files in the folder for the album were twelve kilobytes. Oh. So you, we'd have the name of the you know if you're looking like a Mac folder yeah. window, you'd have the name of the MIDI file or the name of the song. We were using, <laughs> I mean, I was using Digital Performer at the time. We may have done that one in Cubase or something. But you'd have the name of the file, and then off to the right in like the size column, it said twelve K. And every we just saw twelve K, twelve K, twelve K, twelve K, and we're like, well, that's yeah. kind of a cool name. And <laughs> you know, it's it doesn't it's kind of technical and it yeah. doesn't mean anything really. So let's use that. So we use that for the album. And a couple of years later, when I was looking for a n- label name, I kept going back to that as something that was again kind of technological sounding, short, short easy to pronounce. Yeah. Um, it didn't mean anything in particular. Didn't have too much, you know. It didn't have attached too many connotations. It was kind of sure. mathematical, you know. So I, I was trying this, to figure it out. I thought it more had to do with like a frequency or something. Well, th- yeah, that's the thing. I mean, nowadays, I mean, so basically, I asked Savas. I said, "Hey, do you mind if I use that for the label name?" And right. he said, "No, go ahead." So, but yeah, I mean, you know, these days, considering my job as a mastering engineer and stuff like that it kind of seems to make more sense that it would that it would be kilohertz right um and no one you know these days no one really knows what a kilobyte is anymore anyway yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) you know but that's that's where it originated from and but really i I like to stress that it really has no meaning and it just kind of looks cool sure you know and yeah (laughs) yeah. well speaking of i mean Speaking of that, of the of the name and, and how long it's been around, you've built this following over the past 20, 20 years. How did you build that fan base? I mean, it's to the point where, from what I've seen, um, I mean, it's a, we're, we're talking about a, a dedicated fan base, and I think it's because it's such a niche genre. But um, when you first, um, I think you tweeted about an M. Greg record a, a, f- a year ago or a few years ago, and within... With within that day, there was probably half a dozen records of his sold on Bandcamp just because you tweeted about it. And he messaged me, and he was like, "Oh, did you see that Taylor Dupree retweeted my record? I think it was maybe Still Life's." And um, and so you have this fan base, this following who who treat you as their um, as their chief curator, so to speak. How did you build this fan base? Yeah, I mean. Hey, if I can sell six more records, (laughs) (laughs) that's something. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know the extent of who knows or cares about what I do, you know, sometimes. Mm. But I think I've, I mean, the only real answer I have to that is just two things, by loving it, and by being dedicated to it. Yeah. Because I yeah. don't try that hard. Uh, I mean, I work my ass off, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not no, I know, there, I know hey, what you 12K mean. 12K is the greatest label, and I'm promoting it every day and taking out ads in magazines, yeah. talking it up. And yeah, Well, I was going to ask you, does this fan base allow you to avoid some of the traditional marketing well, around exactly a release? From day one, I didn't want to do any of that. And I, okay. From day one till now, I don't want to have an office. And a half dozen employees, 
Yeah. And it's a bit of a, uh, there's good and there's bad to that. I mean, I want it, I want the label to stay small and just to be relaxed, but dedicated and focused. But at the same time, I do have a responsibility to the artists on the label. Yeah. True. I've never claimed to make, to be able to make anyone a hit or a millionaire. And if they can use my label as a launching point to get on to something bigger, mm. you know, I feel like I've done my job. You know, it's like that's great. A lot of labels, you know, would want to keep their artists, and I, of course, I want to keep my artists, but I don't mind. Mm. You know, I, I realize my own limitations, and totally, you know, yeah, I'm not I can't offer big tour support or anything. Like, you know, I just. <laughs> I, I don't do that's not what I do I mean is the word you said earlier is sort of a curator and that's what I feel like I'm good at mm -hmm. doing I'm good at you know curating a you know some sort of quality of music and gathering up a whole bunch of like-minded people and who've all become friends and I think what's great about what you do and what you're saying right now and I've heard this a lot um, from from other labels is it starts with you being a fan of the music and you being a fan uh, not a business person first but a fan of these artists so that if something better comes along for them for their career and for their music that um, you support that but ultimately because ultimately you're a fan yeah and I mean if I were a businessman I'd you know probably be doing a lot better than I am <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not, and I'm not interested in that. Yeah, because totally. again, that you know, when you're 20 years old and you know, fuck the man, and you just want to be a weird artist, that's what I'm still trying to do. You know, by yeah, um, yeah, just loving the music, and because I don't have to make a living doing it, because I have other things. You know, mainly the mastering business. Mm. You know, I've never, I've never looked at the label as my primary source of income. I was That's a graphic good. designer yeah. for twenty years, and now a mastering engineer. So, mm. if you don't have to make a living with it, and you don't have to meet certain quotas and bills and stuff like that, you can afford to be more experimental. Yeah, you know? sure. And I, I talking about this genre over the over the past uh, several decades, but. I've been thinking a lot. I want I want to ask you about this, but I've been thinking a lot over the past year about how the new streaming landscape impacts the um, instrumental ambient music scene. Um, I'm hoping that more and more people, and I, I've talked to M. Greg about this a, a little bit, and kind of my theory as to what I think could happen. But I'm hoping that more and more people can experience this genre now that they have access to everything through Spotify or Apple Music. In the old days, you had to buy. You had a budget to buy a one record or two records on iTunes or, or a CD at the record store. And it was rare that you were able to afford to venture out into new genres. Have you seen ambient music moving into the mainstream at all because of how music dis distribution is now all inclusive for the listener? I think, I mean, the last year, I, it seems to be, I'm hearing about ambient music more. Okay. Some of the, you know, bigger music reporting websites seem to be 
giving it a little more attention. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that's because of uh, Spotify or any of these things, you know, I haven't bothered to uh, <laughs> right. look at the data. I'm sure it partially is. I'm sure it's it's a lot of things. You know, a lot of things contribute to it. Um, but I mean, definitely one of the good things about all this streaming stuff is the access. And, yeah. But it's still, I mean, that's a that's a big conversation, you know, because the <laughs> access is really still it, the access. People completely unaware of it. Um you know, may hear it through a playlist on Spotify, but they're only going to hear those playlists that are like Spotify curated, like their sleep playlist or... Yeah, yeah. And these are big playlists with millions of followers. And if you can get some tracks on there, you can actually make enough money to buy a piece of gear or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) But it's, you know, but if you're not on those playlists you're not making any money. And if I make a playlist of sleep music, which I have, and there's one up there, you know, 33 people listen to it. Right. And those 33 people, I guarantee are already fans of this music. Right. You know, and... Yeah. But, you know, I mean, you do get, you know, if someone, one of the 3 million people listening to the sleep playlist likes one of the artists and, you know, takes the time to search for more stuff by them. I mean, that's, you know, that's great. I mean, that's what it, that's something we, you could never really do before. Yeah. Right. And, and you're, you're right to say it is a bigger conversation. It's something we talk about on this podcast a a lot and it's, it's a, it's still an unknown for everybody. Um, And there's a lot, I think there's a lot to dislike and and then but then there are you know if there if discovery is happening then there's a lot to like about it. Yeah, it's easy. It's really easy to say Spotify sucks and <laughs> they don't pay any money. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's true in a lot of ways, but there are good things about it. Um I don't use it myself. I mean, I have a free account just so I can check on my artists' plays yeah, and stuff right. like that. <laughs> But, yeah, um, yeah, and I was Mike, uh, M. Greg, and I have talked about this a lot because he was the first time I had ever kind of ventured into this this genre, and um, you know, I'm I'm hopeful, and I still am hopeful for um, for for ambient artists um, through through playlisting, even if it is anonymously through some of these um, you know sleep playlists or study playlists um, or yoga or whatever. Um, but I'm I'm hopeful because before that, you know, as as much as two years ago, you would hit up blogs and blogs just can't get the same traction on a on a four minute ambient track that they can on a an indie rock track. And so it it was always hard to get attention for some of this weirder experimental music. Um and so I'm hopeful that maybe um, playlists would be would be the way to to reach people, or at the very least, even if they're not earning fans, they could be at least earning money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do. It 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 does all come down to the playlist, 
you know, and then mm. the as a label or an artist, you have to start thinking about, you know, what kind of, if you want to get on a playlist, then you have to say, well, today I'm going to write a song that's good for jogging. Yeah, no, you're right. And that sucks. You're totally right. No one in their right mind should ever do that. But I'm sure people are doing that. And Well, you know, and it's not, yeah, there are opportunistic people, but at the same time, if you've ever had any um, success on, a playlist then it probably just gets into your head and no you can't ignore it when you're writing a song yeah but it's all you know the playlisting thing is you know i view it as just pure luck because i'm not making songs for you right. or for yeah being, you know so i mean we there's an artist on 12k named ralph steinbruckel and he does very minimalist super electronic sort of sine wave based melodic stuff and he ended up on mm-hmm. spotify's sleep playlist huh. it's a really which is great because his stuff is you know it's not piano yeah uh, which half the stuff is right and it's not you know one of the more well-known ambient artists like Max Richter or Stars of the Lid or something like that. Right. And he was on there for a few months and got a few million streams and That's great. You know, I mean, you take it while you can get it. And then they yeah. you know, they're always sort of rotating in, in and out. So it was there for I don't know, a couple few months and then then it was gone. But it's just kind of luck of the draw. Someone totally liked the track enough to put it on. Um before we move on from this, I, I love what you said. You, this is how I can tell that we are um, we are uh, spirit brothers because you said that if you earn a bunch of money from a playlist, that you'll buy a piece of gear, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, n- not food or clothing or supporting your kids, a piece no, of gear. Piece I love gear. that. Yep, <laughs> all the money pretty much goes back into the gear. Yeah, I hear you. Um, which you have a great collection and we can talk offline about that. Um, I want to talk to you about the difference between, you know, as we're talking about, um, this genre has been known, you know, there is some stuff, piano music and there's some more straightforward music, but I want to talk to you about the difference between music that is art and that noise. That's, that's just nonsense. I mean, as I've been exploring this genre more for myself, I'm naturally drawn to stuff that contains some sort of rhythm or melody, uh, either present or, or buried within. And, and parts of this genre have been debated for the better part of a century as to what is art and what is just a, a madman making noises with his machines. But in your opinion, is there a line that separates music and noise? How, um, do you, do you have some sort of, uh, some sort of red line? No, I, I don't. And I, I'd probably think it would be wrong or, um, pompous, or I don't know if pompous is the right word, but of me to to think that. Um, okay. Nor is it maybe that important. I mean, I'm trying to un trying to unravel my own thoughts here, but sure, isn't yeah. I mean from my own point of view, I consider myself an artist, and I consider my music art, mm-hmm. right. And someone else, you know, has a completely different idea of what's art or what's music. 
and they're going to have their own opinions on my music. Right. You know, so that's just me. So then you might have someone who makes crazy noise music and if they think it's art, then who am I mm-hmm. to say it is or isn't or to say it's music or I mean, I've had conversation with my dad who may hear some crazy hip hop and say that that's not art, it's not even music. Right. Meanwhile, I love hip hop and love think that some of the music in that genre is, you know, completely out there in the best way, hmm. you know, that that you can be and totally think it's art and music. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, noise, you know, uh, music concrete and, yeah, you know, all this stuff. I mean, it's all, I mean, for one thing, I think it's all music. Right. You know, uh, which shouldn't be that much of a surprise to people, you know, when I'm using like field recordings or the sounds of, you know, I think nature is music. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so either I'm not the right person to answer that question or I just don't think that um, it's just too personal of a people have their own you know personal opinions of what is or isn't music or art yeah and I mean I, I there's guess no universal what I'm saying is I don't think there's a universal right you know yeah. definition or rule and I think anytime there tries to be or has been in the past I mean they said that in in the the 50s about rock and roll I mean they said that People were were against the way that uh, how people were moving away from Tin Pan Alley, and so it was. I think any time that you you society has said no, 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 that's noise, then we just end up evolving towards that and crossing that line, and there becomes a new line of what people won't accept. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I it's just a question I've asked myself because I explore so much into this, and I, I explore into tape loops and and drone and and field recordings and there might be something that is not melodic at all um and uh is uh but it it resonates with me and it it hits me in an emotional way and and uh so i i just ask myself that question i think you're right it's subjective it's not universal but um sometimes something comes on and i thought my ears can't handle this i just don't I'm not connecting with this in any way. So I Yeah, and there's a, nothing a, wrong with that either. Yeah. You know, yeah. I like my music on the more melodic side of things. Hmm. You know, and um as opposed to rhythmic or noise. But yeah, again, if it's something you don't like or you just don't connect with it, you know, nothing and, wrong and with that and the weird thing is there's these been these been these moments in in so many different records either a rock record or um an instrumental record where something happens either a mistake or um a person talking uh or a guitar squeak that just embeds itself into the record and after after, after listening to it for 10 years or so it becomes as meaningful in that music as a guitar solo or as some as a chord change it's just there and it's part of the record yeah the the 12 principles on your website are incredible and i'd recommend everyone to pause this right now and go go to 12k.com and read these but this is actually something that has never occurred to me 
as something that I should do, but I love it and I'm going to steal some of them. But the first one is, and and you kind of touched on this a little bit, don't tell listeners what they want to hear. Let them discover that for themselves. What does that mean? Yeah, that came that came pretty much directly out of how I didn't want to run a record label. Okay. You know, basically about being a schmoozer or a talker or, you know, talking up talking up the label and saying it's the greatest thing. Uh, everyone should listen to it. Um, it's, it's just not me to do that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I think, I mean, let me back up by saying that with the label, my intention with the label from the beginning was to have it go for a very long time and go very slowly huh. and not not to rush anything, not to worry too much about things. So from a long-term, it was a long-term commitment. Mm. And there's no, I'd rather, I'd rather have less listeners who have, you know, discovered it themselves and really connect with it than, you know, a whole bunch of listeners who are on it for the flavor of the month, you know, right. just yeah. in the long yeah. run. That's totally true. You know, what are we in the end, you know, if not, you know, some kind of um, just trying to be genuine and trying to be honest, mm. you know, so I just, there's something beautiful in discovery, you know, as anyone can attest to when you're, you know, walking in the woods and discover a really cool, I don't know, you know, flower growing out of the dead leaves or something, you know, it's just, there's something cool about discovering something yourself that touches you. That, that's nicer if, than if someone else said, Hey, look at this cool flower over here. Come over and see it. Yeah. You know, totally. I, that's a great point. Yeah. So it's just about, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that the music that everyone is going to like the music that we release, but if you can find it and feel something for it, then that's valuable, you know. Um, you, you another principle says simplicity anti-design. What is anti-design? That kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier about lack of um, decoration and flourish. Right. I mean, a lot of people over the years have talked to me about the design of of my of the packaging for the label yeah and i've had a very you know the aesthetic has not changed very much even mm-hmm. though the music has um and since i've been a graphic designer for so many years my design philosophy graphic design philosophy is really just about um simple Simple shapes, simple typefaces, a lot of white space, mm-hmm. you know, just um, try to make it, yeah, just, I don't know, it just, you know, I'm not sure that, I don't think my album covers are great design. They're just, it's kind of hard to explain. It's like, there's designers out there who are great designers but I think mine is just so simple that it can hardly be called graphic design. 
<laughs> you know, I don't know. It's just right. thing. That's why it's kind of it just gets design. out of the way. Like, yeah, I don't want I don't want the design to get in the way of the music. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Totally. I don't know. So, some, something in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about mastering because that's something that you do, and and it's it's a company sort of separate on its own, and um, you own this mastering company. Uh, I've the pictures of the of the mastering suite. That's a, is that part of your house? Is that like a? It's a separate building. Uh, okay. Yeah. The studio used to be in my basement, but about four years ago, had the opportunity to build a building outside. I got to pull it up again. So it's like, and cause it has like a really, um, it has a huge window that you kind of look out behind yeah. the monitors. Is that right? Yep. That's really nice. Yeah, and, look, and you're in more of like a rural setting. Yeah. I look out over, um, the studios floating about 10 feet off the ground. Um, it's not anchored. I mean, it's anchored. Obviously it's not literally floating. Um, is it a tree house? Almost, <laughs> oh my but it's gosh. attached to our house, which is, it's oh attached to the second level of our house. Um, so oh, you, there's wow. 10 feet under the studio. There's a patio under the studio. Um, oh, okay. But so it's high up in the air and our house is on a hill as well. And the neighbors <laughs> across the street are much, the whole kind of land slopes downwards. So even though I may only be kind of 10 feet off the ground, when you look out at the neighbor's house across the street, yeah, you're like way over their roof because their house is so much lower. So when oh, you look wow. out of the, and there's a kind of a mountain across the way, it's a nature preserve. Um, you're, you're kind of looking at the tops of the trees. So it feels like you're in a tree house almost. What are those monitors there? Is that a, a custom thing or? No, those are, it's a, um, German company called Geitein. Okay. And I had used, I've heard them and used them over the years um, at a friend's studio in Tokyo. And a um, friend and collaborator of mine, uh, Ryuchi Sakamoto, who also uses them. Mm. And they were always sort of my holy grail of monitors. Right. Um, but they're expensive. And a couple, I've had them now for three, three or four years. And there was a time three or four years ago when the Euro really crashed. Oh, okay. And it was like one-to-one for the dollar or maybe even a little less than the dollar. I forgot. Oh, wow. But I was like, hmm, because I'd always been thinking about these monitors. And you can only <laughs> buy them stuff. from the guy who makes them in Germany. Okay. You can't go to Vintage King and buy them sure. or Sweetwater yeah. or something like that. Um, so I emailed them and kind of dropped a few names of people that own them um, that I've used, you know, heard them on and said, what's the best price you can give me? And um, he gave me basically a price I couldn't refuse. Wow. Um, so I... Good for you. I had, great. I had barefoots well, the, before then. I sold my barefoots to a friend of mine. Oh, okay. okay Little nice. did I know shipping would be $1,500 and import taxes <laughs> would be another $1,000. <laughs> <laughs> but I had already committed been, at that point. So Maybe you could have 
flown but, over there cheaper. And yeah, but I love here. them. They're very um, natural sounding. Well, speaking of which, they have the natural wood finish. They kind of ha- match the aesthetic of the room too in the nature. Yeah, oh yeah, you can get, he builds them in various kinds of wood and finishes and... Oh, I see. Uh, okay. I've seen black That's, ones and how did you get into that business? I mean, you you were you were in an art director and then you and a musician and then started the label and how did that transition into mastering? Uh I mean, when I was I was always, of course always interested in sound and music, so that goes without saying yeah. and always interested in the technical side of things, you know, since I was 15 with my subscription to Keyboard Magazine, you know, just drooling <laughs> over uh, gear, you know, just yeah. the the gear bug hit me early on. Yeah. Um, when I worked at the label in the 90s, they had me, because they knew I had the, you know, uh, technical, you know, the, some sort of technical talent. You were a nerd. You can say I was that. a nerd. Um, <laughs> they had me... They the label did a lot of compilation releases. Okay. Like one a week. Um oh. so they had me compile uh compile the compilations from various from their catalog and other things they were licensing and stuff. So they'd hand me like a pile of fifteen CDs and want me to make like the master oh, CDR wow. for it. Now I wouldn't do like these are all you know, commercially finished stuff. I wasn't, so what I do is basically do the sequencing and leveling and then occasionally maybe an EQ tweak, like a really broad, you know, if one track was just way brighter than the rest or whatever. Oh, I see. And I didn't even really know what mastering, what mastering was or think that I was doing, you know, mastering. Yeah. But, you know, as it, turns out that's a big part of mastering is the sequencing the you know level yeah, matching and fit. so i did that for a while and when i had um left working there and was you know on my own at home as a freelance graphic designer and the music was the labels well underway this was only maybe 10 10 or more years ago um, it sort of occurred to me that the kind of music that I do and that my friends do and that we all do, that we really love sound and the, the quality of the sounds because because they're not pop tracks and they're not hooks and there's not vocals. Uh, it's all about the sound, you know, like the, the sound design and the, um, quali- the quality of sound is really important. Yeah, and at the same time, we're all doing everything in our bedrooms, <laughs> so you may not have the best interface or monitoring situation or whatever. So there's something, you know, that's e- that I felt was either lacking or could be improved on. So I said, "Hey, why don't you know? I'm kind of interested in this mastering thing. Why don't I buy a tube compressor and make everything sound better for me and my?" <laughs> So I bought a Manly Verimu, thinking that as soon as I ran anything through it, it would sound like a million dollars. Yeah. And it did. Uh, <laughs> it was nice, but it really didn't make that much of a difference. 
Right. So I'm scratching my chin and figuring out, well, you know, there must be something else I need. So basically, like over the course of a year or something, or just kind of slowly figuring it out with the goal of making, you know, my music sound better and my friend's music sound better. Um, yeah. Just started reading and, and, you know, learning as I went about this whole mastering thing. So it's, you know, I realized, oh, I need a better converter, you know, so I get a better mm -hmm. converter and, you know, I should probably get a, and, and it was all about the outboard, you know, I, we were all doing music in our computers. I had no interest yeah. of, of adding any more computerized totally. digital sound. I wanted to get it out into, and I was at the point in my career where I didn't want to buy gear that I knew I'd be selling in five years. Yeah. I didn't want to yeah. kind of mid heard that a lot here anymore, you know, unless it was something quirky and weird, you know, I wanted to mm -hmm. buy equipment that I knew I'd have, you know, for a long time and they would like, yeah. Time. So I just started, you know, I pick up an EQ and then I realized after I had a better converters and a couple good compressors, now things were actually starting to sound, you know, really nice. And that, that it, there wasn't any magic piece of gear that instantly made things sound better. But if you, you know, add all these things together, then it did indeed make a difference. Right. And I, well, it's in, yeah. It's interesting that you, um, the problem that you were solving was this, you know, bedroom recordings and then, and then bringing it up to making it a little more special because that's what, and I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, the importance of mastering because it's, it's such a mystical part of the recording process. And I, we have a lot of listeners who are DIY musicians who do record on their laptops at home um, or, or, or pieces of different studios and, and maybe one track in a studio and one and a couple tracks at home. Um, why is it important for indie labels and for DIY artists to have their albums mastered? Well, first of all, I'm incredibly grateful for all the clients that I get because I'm really, really busy. And I just That's great. lately I've not, I'm so far behind on my own music projects. And the, the clients I'm getting are, for the most part, small labels like myself or artists without labels hmm. and they're finding that you know four or five hundred dollars in their shoestring budgets for mastering which is something yeah. that even me as a label back in the day would never have done right because every penny counts when you're you know just hardly making oh, anything totally. on a release so yeah um i think you know for these artists and labels who feel like mastering is important enough for them to put it in their budget. Um, now I've lost track of your original question. Well, I was asking why should they? I mean, I'm looking right, at your right, rates right. and it's really fair. I mean, you're talking about for a small EP, it's it, you give price breaks on, um, on two or more songs. And so for under 300 bucks, they can make a, a, a small EP, get it done, master. But why should they? Why? Why is it important for some of these homemade tracks? Yeah, it's. I mean, not to 
belittle what I do, but I don't think it's 100% necessary. I mean, I've, I've wow. released tracks of my own for years and years and years that were never mastered. Mm. And because I didn't know what mastering was. And when I yeah. did know what mastering was, I didn't want anyone else to touch my music. Yeah. Like, same, why should same. I give it to this stranger and have <laughs> yeah. him do things? You I've know, it's kind of like a control, a control thing, like a control freak yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. But now that I'm, know what it does and how important it is in a in the step of things um i mean what an important step it is it's i mean there's a whole bunch of layers to it i mean one of the probably the most important thing is simply to get another set of ears yeah i agree with that to hear it in and what i learned in terms of buying all this equipment and stuff that as I was getting started, no matter, I eventually realized no matter what equipment I had, if my monitors and room weren't good, then it was all kind of pointless anyway. Um, okay. So it's getting that another set of ears to hear it in a room that you trust, you know, that you know mm -hmm. has been designed to sound, you know, to sound right. Yeah. Um, and even if it's, you know, even if a mastering engineer gets the record and says, hey, this hardly needs anything, you know, it's, I've had people, I mean, I haven't done that too much, but there's definitely jobs that have a much lighter mastering touch than others. Mm -hmm. And it's just some artists like that just for the peace of mind that, okay, you know, um, you know, they can more confidently get it out in the world knowing that it's, you know, uh, gone through another set of ears and kind of given the okay. Yeah. Um, you know, another uh, bit of it is, you know, kind of translating to different playback systems. Right, right, right. And to me, that's the most important aspect of choosing monitors is how well they translate around to other playback things. And I've had, you know, countless clients tell me that their masters are sounding great, you know, on their phones and in their studios and on their laptops and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, and, you know, then you have sort of the, you know, if the sort of the corrective aspect of it, where if a bedroom musician does not have a great monitoring situation, it's, you know, there's a lot of mistakes or a lot of issues that can easily pop up in the low end. Yeah. Uh, a lot of phase issues, you know, now that there's so much vinyl being produced, you know, most of my mastering is going for vinyl releases. Wow. And, a lot, you know, more than half of my clients don't even really know what uh, what it means to be out of phase or to have mm -hmm. phase incoherence and how that can, in the low end, how that can really mess up a vinyl cut. Right. So, yeah, that's right. you know, maybe they send it out to a, without mastering to a cutting engineer and the cutting engineer comes back and says, hey, this is like totally out of phase. 
Mm. And we need to do something about it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's going through a mastering engineer who already knows that and can already fix that. Um, I mean, I've never once in all the records I've mastered have ever had a record come back from a cutting engineer. Wow. You know, saying that there's a problem. Um, and I, and I, I think I like, I like that. I mean, there are, there are some, there are technical things and, and it's been a mystical process for some artists because the, it has been so technical. And, um, but I think that that's, you know, one of the points, that's one of the points why it's important for artists to, if they can afford it, if it's in the budget and if they find the right person that they want to work with, um, I think it's great, not only for another set of ears, um, and, and, and a set of ears that they admire and trust, I think, you know, um, with you, but, um, but yeah, for someone to to look over some of those technical things that um, most artists wouldn't know or most indie labels wouldn't know to check, um, but actually could. I mean, if you're pressing the vinyl, I think it's um, if you're uploading to DistroKid the same day you record it, maybe not. But uh, if you're pressing the vinyl, that's a, a very expensive process, and you want to make sure you do that right. Yeah, and also um, you said something that just triggered. Now I'm trying to remember. Um, oh yeah in, in terms of you know another a lot of people may yeah not know what mastering is or not know if they need it um, and I've had a lot of clients who come to who are the, they come to me and it's their first time you know dealing with mastering so they're not quite sure what to expect and they thought they tried out basically, which is mm -hmm. great, you know, that they're willing to go that extra step. Um, and they get the master back and they're like, wow, like, you know, I had no idea sort of, or <laughs> yeah. I'm hearing things in there that, you know, that I didn't know were there, like in a good way, or you, you know, um, you've corrected everything. I thought everything that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Mm -hmm. you know sort of thing yeah and and another thing i do for people is um i'll offer i'll always do a test master okay because i think even if you know what mastering is and you've had a million records mastered you have to have a good rapport with a mastering engineer and you have to feel comfortable that that engineer understands and gets where you're coming from musically right um and if it's not a good match, if I'm not the right guy for the job, that's fine. You know, I don't want somebody to use me because they feel like they have to or they feel like, yeah. you know, you have to use someone who you're comfortable with. And um, if I do a test master and you don't like it, no problem. You know, I'm not going to get mad. Uh, you, you need to find someone who you gel with Yeah. Uh, for, you know, whatever reason. And, you know, I've also had people coming to me who've tried another mastering engineer who just, who didn't get their music. You know, maybe they weren't used to, you know, whatever weird experimental thing they were doing and they felt like I might be better suited for it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I like that. I mean, that's what I would, I would recommend is finding a mastering engineer who's worked on records that you like and admire or the type of records that you, that you like and and admire yeah and that being said i mean there is a as you mentioned there's a 
big technical side of mastering as well as the sort of artistic side. Mm-hmm. And I've done music. I don't just stick in my genre. I mean, I've done Christmas records and, right. you know, um, singer songwriters and, yeah, you know, I mean, I can do anything. Of course, I have an ear for, you know, the more experimental things, but um, sure, sure, you know. So l- l- let me. Um, I don't. I don't want to take any more of your time, but the. I wanted to ask you. I mean, we're talking about mastering now, and and you've been running this label for over twenty years. Um, you do the, you do the design on the label, and and you're a musician that you haven't had time to work on your projects. Do you like having this variety? Do they all excite you equally, or or one more than the other? Yeah, they definitely. I mean, I guess if I had, in an ideal world, I would do nothing but sit at home writing music and making yeah. weird sounds all day. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But if that were actual reality, I'm not sure I could do that anyway. Just I'm so used to doing different things, and it's exciting to do. I mean, if I had to be in here all day just writing music i'd probably burn out like anybody else would Mm -hmm. you know trying to it's nice to earn that time yeah and and i you know i'm fortunate enough that i've surrounded myself and made a living somehow by all these random little things that i love to do yeah you know yeah the mastering lately has been taking the majority of my time um but i love doing it and I get mm. to sit here in front of really cool gear all day long. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You know, um, you know, that's and when awesome. the when the schedule starts to clear up a little, I find time to work on my own thing, and then it ramps back up. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I kind of my parents were the same way. They didn't. Neither of my parents put on a suit and went to work in the morning. Oh, really? You know, they were. What did they do? Um, they were antique dealers. Oh, wow. And uh, my dad did a lot of landscaping, landscape design. Hmm. Um, my mother, my dad still does a little, the antiquing thing is, it changed a lot since eBay. Um, oh, yeah. But they were, right. they were pretty, you know, well-known, hardcore antique dealers. Uh, on the East Coast here, and my mom, you know, but so they were, they weren't put on suit people, <laughs> and somehow that must have rubbed off on me because uh, I don't own a suit, and the last time I wore a tie was when I got married. So <laughs> good for you, and that's kind of the way I want it, you know. And I just yeah. sort of made my own path and uh, doing doing what I love and fortunate enough that um, I can make a living doing it. It's it's so amazing, man. And it's such an honor to talk to you today. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I've, I've, I just, um, Tape Op recently did a, a piece on you and they actually just started um, shipping their magazines to Canada, which you could never get them. Oh, nice. Tape Op is so Canada. good. But they, they only started this fall um and uh there was a mention of you in an issue that was just the issue before the issue i got which has an interview with daniel lanois but anyhow um i'll have to grab a copy of uh 
of the July August because it does has some, it has some photos and anyone who's listening who has a copy of Tape Off has some great photos of your studio. What a yeah, there's a place. couple small ones. Um, I, I, I didn't realize you had such a modular collection there. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's another episode. That's a that's a different episode. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I love Tape Off. Is I'm glad you can get it. Um, finally get it. To me, I I read that magazine cover to cover, mm-hmm. and I don't. Probably ninety percent of the people in every issue I've never heard of before. Right. And if I have heard of them, there's a seventy-five percent chance that I don't care for or listen to or know their music. Right. But I read it every interview, cover to cover, because every it's all interesting. Yeah. And even if yeah. you're reading about some metal producer, you'll find things in their process. Totally. That is like, wow, that's a really cool idea. Yeah. You know, yeah, how totally. can I use that for what I do? And it's just, it's really inspiring to read. You know, musicians are just really interesting people. Agreed. And Agreed. whether they... What, yeah. What's this, what's that big synth there? Is that a Jupiter or something? What? Jupiter 8. Jupiter 8. Oh my yeah, gosh. my uncle gave me that years ago. No way. Oh, man. I wonder yeah. how many uncles are out there with old keyboards they want to yeah, get. Yeah, he away. had a Jupiter, he, he's a piano, he's a very good piano player, but back in the 70s and 80s, he got into electronic music and had a bought himself a Jupiter Eight and an Eight Hundred Eight in a reel-to-reel recorder and a MC Two Hundred Two. Where did the Eight Hundred Eight go? Oh, it's here. <laughs> no way. It's all here. Oh my and I begged him for years. When I got into techno and stuff, I was like, "Oh, you have to give me that Eight Hundred Eight." He's like, "He's like, it's in my closet. I've, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I'll ever give it to you. I don't know." And one one year for Christmas. Uh, Oh, box and there was the 808. Oh, man. then of course after that I was like, you have to give me that Jupiter Eight. <laughs> He's like, I'm never giving you the Jupiter. 8. <laughs> and yeah, years and years ago now. Uh, oh, that's great. Give it to me, and it's you know. Oh, I would love to do a studio tour with you sometime. Yeah, I would love. I mean, as fellow gear geeks, if if you're ever in New York, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you know what I've. um I, I definitely, definitely would. I, I'm not sure. I, I have to talk to somebody about uh, Canadians going down to the States for quasi-business purposes and if, if I would um, need a, a, to, a visa to shoot something. I mean, it, there's no money involved, but the, the border is such a tricky place. But yeah. I, would, I would love to. You ever go to an AES show or ever any interest in going to the AES show? Yeah, I mean, I I would love to. Yeah, I could. Yeah, because that's here in New York. Yeah. Well, I'm sure I could find some other things to make the yeah. trip worth it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it would be. I'm sure it would be fine because it's just bringing a camera and and chatting. But uh, anyway, it looks like such a gorgeous space. Yeah, I love. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's small. It's very small, but it's um, now I feel like it's too small. But yeah, probably just because I have too much equipment. <laughs> Right, right. Well, listen, you can pretend you're my uncle and give me some. Yeah. (laughs) But kind of like Tape Off is I love your studio tour series. Oh, thank you. Because it's the same thing. I don't know who these guys are. Yeah. They're probably recording music that I don't know. And they have equipment that I don't need, like, or use, like, drum sets or, like, map collections. 
but it's so interesting. Yeah, you know, and I, I agree. I see how other people do it, and and I always come away from one of the tours, and 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 we're talking about this uh, um, separate from the podcast, but it's on our YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash/other songs. We have these studio tours where we talk with engineers and producers who who don't often get much um, in the spotlight in the music industry, but um, I find no matter if it's a bedroom studio or it's a massive commercial studio, um, there's always, it, it's like you were saying about tape op, there's always a little tidbit that you, you pull away and you go, that's a great idea. Even if it's something as silly as plugging an iPhone charger into a power conditioner or something, it's just these little tricks right. that's like, oh, that's a great idea. I should do that. Right. Because there's, you know, we're, we're lucky to be in a line of work where there's no rules. Yes. And, totally there's a million solutions to every single problem and a million ways of there's no right way to mic a drum kit and there's no right way to record a synth and everyone's going to do a little differently. Um, so the more you can kind of soak in, the more you can, you know, make informed decisions of your own when you're sitting there trying to totally do something. Thanks so much for doing this, man. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks so much. Really a pleasure for me. And thank you for listening. And thanks to Taylor for um, so many great insights. Uh, Make sure you subscribe if you haven't already. Please check out 12K at 12K.com. That release we were talking about at the very beginning by M. Grigg is called Mount Carmel, and it's coming out in a couple of weeks. So look out for that. Please subscribe and share the podcast. you can email us at podcast at otherrecordlabels.com and visit us at otherrecordlabels.com. And on Twitter, it's at other songs. And on Instagram, it's at other songs or at other record labels. Thanks so much. <laughs>